0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. Next week will be the weekend of the Oscars this year. And I'm pretty excited about it, although given last year's ceremony when we were still in lockdown and while the vaccine for uh, COVID had been developed by the CDC and other brilliant uh, researchers, we still had to <laughs> gather in limited capacity if at all possible. And that resulted in probably one of the least rated And one of the most critically derailed Oscars ceremonies in a while. I don't know if this Oscar ceremony that's coming up is going to be as derided. No one exactly knows, but I am pretty excited for it. And next week I'm going to, rather than doing my usual movie reviews, I'm going to be going through who I think will win the Oscar for best picture or rather well not just best picture but all most of the other categories as well and who i th- who i think should win so who i think will win and who i think should win sometimes they're both the same thing but that's all going to be on next week's show this week's show it's movie reviews as usual starting with one of the newest films i saw this week which is the Netflix original film Windfall which just came out on March 19th, excuse me, March 18th, uh, 2021. It is a film that stars, uh, Jason Siegel, Lily Collins, and Jesse Plemons. And they are three of the only actors in this film. It's about a man played by Jason Siegel who breaks into a tech billionaire's empty vacation home, but things go sideways when the arrogant mogul and his wife arrive for a last minute getaway. And it's one of these films that's called a bottle story and what the bottle story is. And sometimes on TV they have bottle episodes, but what it is is when the vast majority of a movie, if not the whole movie takes place in one enclosed area. And it's mainly about people who are just conversing with one another. And eventually you find that not everyone is as noble as they probably, um, appear on the surface, not, uh, Jason Siegel's character who's credited in this film as nobody. And also Jesse Plemons is the tech billionaire CEO, probably modeled after either Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. And he is just actually referred to as CEO and Lily Collins is not given a name. She is only credited as wife. And this is a story that feels like a play. But it is actually based on an original story, interestingly enough. Um, The story is by uh, Charlie McDowell, who also directed the movie, Uh, Jason Segel, who, of course, stars in the film, Uh, Justin Lader, and Andrew Kevin Walker. And those last two are not as familiar, but they actually, unlike um, Charlie McDowell and uh, Jason Segel, they wrote the screenplay to this movie. And this film windfall feels like a play, uh, in, in a sense. So it's, it's all the more ironic that it actually isn't, but it could be. And rest assured if this movie is a big enough hit, in other words, if it gets the critical adoration, um, either from critics like myself or from audiences, it could eventually be developed into a play either, um, on the London stage or even on Broadway. I don't know if that's going to happen, but technically it could. And it starts off by introducing us to Jason Siegel, and he is in this um, very nice uh, summer home that's by an orange grove, presumably in uh, mid uh, to Southern California, and he's just going about his business, walking around like, like he owns the place. But you find out a little bit later, and this might be a little bit of a spoiler that he doesn't own the place, but you can probably tell from the fact that he's not very well shaven and his clothes are kind of, uh, tattered that he's probably not the owner of this place, but things go really haywire when, um, Jesse Clemens and Lily Collins as CEO and wife. And as I said earlier, that are those, are their actual character names, um, come down for the weekend and things get really complicated. And this is one of those instances, kind of like the very beginning of all the president's men where, you know, what Jason Siegel is doing is wrong, but you're still nervous for him in terms of him getting caught, but not a spoiler alert. He does. And he holds wife and CEO at gunpoint. And the, the CEO is willing to give him whatever he wants, just as long as, This nobody guy disappears, but there, there is one thing that's actually preventing Jason Siegel's character from leaving. And that's the fact that his face has been caught on a security camera. Now for probably any other person, if they've been caught on camera, they would just hot footed and leave and go wherever. And especially since they are presumably in California, I would probably, if I were Robbing this place and got thousands of dollars under my belt. I would go right to Vegas, but in the most contrived part of this film, nobody doesn't quite do that. And he goes back and tries to get much more money out of Jesse Plemons character, uh, somewhere in the, uh, six figures. But as this tech billionaire would probably tell you, it's not quite that easy to get That kind of money from anybody, but most especially a billionaire. Ironically enough, but then eventually things go really wrong, particularly when there's somebody, one of the CEO's employees, who's charged with upkeeping this summer home while the CEO is away. Who pays a visit, and then the hostage situation gets even more complicated from there, and sometimes even more deadly. And I loved the acting performances of all four of the actors here. Um, Jason Siegel, I always love, even though Jason Siegel mostly plays a nice guy here. He actually plays a pretty good person. You'd be bound to hate not only for his, um, just loafing, but also the fact that he just doesn't know how to leave until he gets an unreasonable amount that the CEO is willing to give him. And also, uh, Jesse Plemons is good as always as this uh, CEO, but there's also a bit of a dark side to him. Of course, you know that he got his billions from working hard, but it's only as the film progresses that you realize that he might have stepped on more heads to get to where he is than he would be willing to admit even to his wife, a Lily Collins character. And there are flinchworthy scenes. There are also scenes that are kind of too drawn out, I think, in terms of dialogue where it gets a little draggy and the dialogue doesn't quite live up to the situation that these four characters find themselves trapped in in this film. But overall, I liked windfall. I thought it was an excellent film, a bit predictable here and there. but I did enjoy it for its performances, maybe not for the dialogue, which could have been much stronger. but when things really go wrong, the movie really picks up. But then again, there is that contrivance of Jason Siegel's character not leaving because he's caught on camera which I don't think any reasonable person would actually do. But I think Windfall is a good movie for what it is, and for that reason I give it my rating of a checkout, because what it lacks in some of the motivations of the characters, as well as some of the dialogue that's drier than it should be, it more than makes up for for its on-location shoot and the performances of all four Actors in this film and Lily Collins is one of those, uh, actors who has a very, uh, tough act to follow in terms of being in the same movie as Jesse Plemons and Jason Siegel, who have a lot more years of acting experience and notable TV and movie roles to their name than she does, but she holds her own very well uh, along these two. And I think she probably has the breakout performance here, but Overall, the movie's not great, but I still think it's passable and I still think it is worth a look. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Cheaper by the Dozen. This is a Disney film that is premiered on uh, Disney Plus on March 18th, 2021, and it is a remake of the 2003 movie of the same name, starring uh, Steve Martin and Bonnie Hunt, amongst most Um, amongst other people, which is in and of itself a remake of the 1950 film uh, Cheaper by the Dozen, which starred such uh, actors as Clifton Webb and Myrna Loy, amongst others. And unlike the 1950 film or the 2003 film, this film Cheaper by the Dozen is not about a woman who has had 12 children. And by had, I mean given birth to them. It's actually about a blended family and has a little bit more in common with the 1968 Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda film Yours, Mine, and Ours, which was also remade into a film starring Dennis Quaid and Rene Russo, which was not as well-received as the Steve Martin and Bonnie Hunt film. But even though it has um, an easy comparison to the film that came out 18 or 19 years ago, I actually enjoyed this version of Cheaper by the Dozen than I did the Steve Martin and Bonnie Hunt film. I have not seen the original 1950 film, but maybe I'll see it uh, later on. But this film is actually about not only about a blended family, but it's also about a blended biracial family, the Bakers, consisting of the matriarch, Paul Baker, who's played by Zach Braff, and his loving and devoted wife, Zoe Baker, who's played by Gabrielle Union. And as I said previously, unlike the other uh, previous Cheaper by the Dozen films, Gabrielle Union did not give birth to, or Gabrielle Union's character did not give birth to uh, their growing family. Um, Not all the members, at least. Uh, She has two children from a previous marriage, a basketball phenom by the name of Deja, who's played by uh, by Journey Brown, and a milquetoast bookish uh, kid named DJ, who's played by Andre Robinson. These two she had from her previous husband, um, a, a... football player by the name of Dom Clayton, who's played by Timon Kyle Durrett. And Zach Braff's character, Paul, actually had two children from a previous marriage, one named Ella, who's played by Kylie Rogers, and also a wheelchair-bound girl named Harley, who's played by Kaylee Blosensky. And they also adopted an Indian child, Haresh, who's played by Aryan Simhadri. And he had these uh, two children plus one adopted child with Kate, who's played by Erica Christensen. And eventually, Gabrielle Union's character and Zach Braff's character get divorced from their respective uh, partners, and they meet in a very sweet way that I won't exactly give away. They get married, and they have several children of their own, including a set of twins, who for time's sake, I won't reveal. But altogether, they're one happy, blended family. But uh, from there, I think things get a little predictable, particularly when Zach Braff's character is a baker who also, ha- uh, well, he's his last name is Baker, but he's a professional chef who runs a restaurant that serves breakfast 24-7, which isn't the most inspired um, premise for uh, a restaurant. I mean, look at uh, Denny's and IHOP, but it's it's a nice uh, family restaurant uh, at which both uh, Paul and Zoe and members of their family who are uh, of age to work, uh, work there. And things get, I think, a bit more complicated when uh, Paul uh begins to develop a new sauce that is both sweet, savory and uh sweet sour and savory. I think that's what uh oh I'm sorry. It's it's hot, sweet and savory. I don't know exactly how that would taste, but it earns the interest of two uh restauranteurs who are also uh hedge fund managers who are um named Michelle and Melanie, who are played by real-life twins, Cynthia and Brittany Daniel. And from there, Paul finds himself reluctantly having to leave his family and his restaurant operations to expand and also to franchise his brand, much to the doubt of some members of his family, particularly his oldest stepdaughter Deja who finds herself going to a private school she doesn't want to go to and his wife Zoe who is happy that they move to a, a nicer house in a nicer neighborhood particularly where they have a house that's big enough for rooms for all of their children but she is afraid as is typical of these kinds of comedies that her husband is getting away from the message of his Uh, restaurant, as well as getting spending too much time away from their family, which I think puts Gabrielle Union's character in the unflattering role of being the nagging wife, which to her credit, I think she's as versatile an actress not to let that myopic view of her character uh, withhold her. But... I did think it was a bit of a cliche that I don't think the writers of the film, particularly Kenya Barris, who wrote the, who co-wrote the screenplay for this film actually intended. I do think that Kenya Barris might have written a solid screenplay here, but as typical in Hollywood, it just seems that it's not just one or two people who write a script, including those who are credited it's producers and studio executives and studio heads who contribute one thing after another. And I did think that there were certain scenes and certain parts of the film that weren't entirely necessary. Like for instance, there seems to be a bit of a competition between Zach Braff's character and Timon Kyle Durrett's character, particularly when they're at a basketball game and during halftime there's a dance-off between the two dads that is just really cringeworthy and not altogether that inspired. And I've seen it in a bunch of other films before and rest assured, uh, dad jokes are bad enough, but when two dads compete against one another, it's just, it's unrealistic. First of all, in in most cases. And secondly, when put on screen, it's not funny. There's also the case where Erica Christian's character, who is Zach Braff's character's ex-wife babysits the children when the parents are away. And Erica Christian, who is at least 38, I I can't exactly look up what age she is right now, in this movie acts like a 15-year-old. When she's supposed to babysit, she's on her phone and she's looking at TikTok videos. And so the kids, in a comic fashion, sort of run amok. Plus, she seems all too comfortable hanging out with the family of her ex-husband. And there's even one part where she wants to, or suggests that she likes to move in with her ex-husband and his new wife, which seems very weird and also not funny. But even though I've explained a lot of the negatives, here are some of the positives. First of all, Zach Braff and Gabrielle Union have unlikely, but amazing chemistry together. And when they're in scenes together, both when they're in good times and also somewhat in bad, minus the contrivances, I think the scenes between the two of them work together very well. I also liked every single kid who played one of their children, whether it's one of their, um, um, adopted children, stepchildren, it didn't matter. All of them were great. There is a, a child of theirs who's not theirs. Uh, it's actually uh, Zach Braff's nephew who moves in with them after um, his sister, who is his nephew's mother, goes into rehab. Not only does that seem like a sitcom plot that's very tired in and of itself, but the kid who plays the, uh, the nephew, Seth, whose uh, name is Luke Prail, I didn't think was very good. I thought his performance was very monotone, whether he was supposed to be happy or he was supposed to be um, angry. I just wasn't really convinced by his performance. And especially when you have seasoned actors like Zach Braff and Gabrielle Union, not to mention other child actors who have been in other things before, this guy needed to step it up, and he really didn't. And I didn't think altogether his character was that necessary. But with that said, with um, all the contrivances and some of the things that just didn't work here, I did come out of this film feeling like I knew all the kids, which is not easy to do with a film that has 10 or 11 children in it, But I felt like all the child actors who played either the children, adopted children, or stepchildren of Zach Braff and Gabrielle Union's character did a very good job with the roles that they were given. There are even two sets of twins here who are younger than eight, I believe, and they were really adorable. Um, I didn't like the kid who played Seth. I didn't like the character in and of itself, but I still felt like there was more to like about this film than there was not to like. So I give cheaper by the dozen, my rating of a checkout. And why do I like this better than the version with Steve Martin and Bonnie Hunt Even though I like those two actors very much, I felt like there were more contrivances in that Cheaper by the Dozen movie than there was in this one. And there were also scenes that seemed particularly unrealistic. And not to mention, Zach Braff makes a better restauranteur, a more convincing restauranteur than Steve Martin made a football coach. When I saw him as a football coach in that Cheaper by the Dozen movie from 2003, I didn't believe him for a second, especially coming from somebody who played football for nine years in school. Um, It just—it didn't really work for him as a profession, but there are other reasons why that earlier Cheaper by the Dozen movie faltered, but especially compared to other Disney remakes, like Home Sweet Home Alone, Cheaper by the Dungeon was pretty good. It had some notable weaknesses, but not enough for me not to recommend it, particularly as a family movie that kids might like. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Cyrano, which is based directly on the play Cyrano de Bergerac, which was written by Edmond Rostant in 1897. It is actually based on a real life person and the play is a fictionalization following the broad outlines of his life. So the original play was written in verse and with rhyming couplets of 12 uh, syllables, syllables uh, per line, but it is actually um, based on uh, a musical that was adapted from Cyrano de Bergerac, and the screenplay of this film was written by Erica Schmidt. And in the original play written by Edmond Rostant, Cyrano de Bergerac is a man who lives in Paris in 1640, and he is a nobleman who serves as a soldier in the French army. But he has an obnoxiously large nose in just about every adaptation of uh, Cyrano de Bergerac, including a modern adaptation which was called Roxanne, uh, which came out in the late 80s. It was a very good, uh, funny film starring Steve Martin, Daryl Hannah as the titular character, and Shelley Duvall, amongst other people. And there was also a film adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac based directly on Edmond Rostand's play, which had Gérard Depoideau as the long-nosed hero of that movie. But in this film... Uh, Cyrano, which is directed by Joe Wright, Peter Dinklage plays the titular character. And unlike other incantations of Cyrano de Bergerac, Peter Dinklage does not have an obnoxiously long nose. As a matter of fact, to my knowledge, other than the usual makeup that uh, actors are required to wear on screen, this Cyrano doesn't have any facial deformities. But Peter Dinklage is a midget, and that is his deformity that causes other people to call him a freak, which is interesting because Peter Dinklage uh, has been playing, to his credit and to Hollywood's credit for that instance, a lot of characters that are, um, are not mentioned to be a midget or a little person. The last uh, film that made uh, mention of his deformity, for lack of a better term, uh, are, are actually two movies that came out in 2003. One is The Station Agent, which put Peter Dinklage on the map and got him very close to being a household name. And the other one was Elf, where his size was used for laughs. But I think in the movie Elf, it was used... Almost uh, dignifiably uh, for a laugh, unlike um, other films where they used midgets and made fun of them for their size, particularly in the Austin Powers films, the, at, uh, at least the last two, and with the same ca- oh with the same actor in *The Love Guru*, a movie I haven't seen from beginning to end, but the the jokes that are given to Vern Troyer for being short were just uh, underhanded and. I think Vern Troyer, God rest his soul, deserved better, but Peter Dinklage certainly paved the way for actors his size and maybe even shorter. But in this version of Cyrano de Bergerac, it does still take place in uh, Paris in the 1640s, and Roxanne is played by Haley Bennett, and she is probably not the prettiest actress they could have gotten, but... When she sings in this movie, she sings like an angel. And, of course, Cyrano, just like in the original Cyrano de Bergerac play, uh, has an aching love for her. And when you, when you hear her sing, who could blame uh, Cyrano for feeling this way? But there's also a love triangle that forms when a handsome young man by the name of Christian, who's played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., also falls for Roxanne. Even though Christian has a lot going for him as a facade than Cyrano does, Cyrano is the one with the brains and the words, and he begins dictating to Christian the words that he should say to Roxanne to win her heart, as well as also writes letters to Roxanne from Cyrano's heart, but signing uh, Christian's name to them. And I'm not going to give away the plot of the movie, but I will say this, there are other versions of Cyrano de Bergerac that do not end tragically unlike the play, but this version I think sticks very well to the story of Cyrano de Bergerac, but I'm not going to give away how it ends, but if you're expecting a happy ending, you might be sorely disappointed and you might be unpleasantly surprised. That's all I'm going to say. Maybe I spoiled a little bit too much there, but I loved Peter Dinklage in this film as uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. I thought he didn't have a prosthetic nose. He didn't need one, but I thought that not only did he deliver the lines very well, but there are also some very impressive scenes that involve sword fighting, particularly in the beginning where he is called a freak by a snobbish, Nobleman, who is about 150 years shy of the French Revolution, but if it was somewhere close to 1789, this Nobleman will probably be screwed. And uh, Cyrano is a film that was eligible for the Academy Awards. It has only been nominated for one Academy Award for Best Achievement in Costume Design, but I actually thought that um, Peter Dinklage, even though I saw this film a little late, I think he should have been nominated for Best Actor in this film. He was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best um, Actor in a Musical or Comedy, but in a film, in a year that has had several great musicals, including the remake of West Side Story, Tick, Tick, Boom, and Encanto, amongst others, not to mention In the Heights, Cyrano could certainly be added to that roster of exceptional musical films that came out this year. I was very impressed by it, not only by the costume design, which was good enough to be nominated for an Oscar, which it may or may not win. I don't know, but I'll describe that next week when I get into my annual uh, pre Oscar show. But I was very impressed by the singing in this film, not to mention the songs. I thought that Peter Dinklage did an amazing job uh, anchoring this film. And I'd love to see him be the star of other films as well. Not necessarily ones that mention his height as the main plot of the film, but this one I think brought his height about appropriately like the station agent did and uh, some other films in which he starred as well. But I thought the scenes where he, he was with Haley Bennett and the two of them sang a duet were amazingly uh, choreographed, not to mention sung. And Kelvin Harrison Jr. did very well in this film as Christian. And there were also some other noteworthy supporting players in this film as well, like Bashir Salahuddin as um, a a confidant of Cyrano's named Lebrette. And I also liked the very brief appearance of in a young, very pretty Indian actress named Anjana Vasan, who played uh, a nun by the name of Sister Claire later on in the film during the last act. But Cyrano was not exactly a pleasant surprise because Peter Dinklage has a lot of acting credibility um, in him. And even when he's in a bad film, he's usually the best part about either bad or mediocre films. So I was not surprised that Cyrano would be great. It was just great for more reasons than I imagined that it would be, which is why it gets my rating of a knockout. And I should mention the director, Joe Wright. Joe Wright has directed a lot of great films and some bad films. Amongst the films that he has directed that have been exceptional have included his, uh, feature film directorial debut in, uh, pride and prejudice where he directed Kira Knightley as Elizabeth Bennett. He also collaborated with Kira Knightley in the soloist and Anna Karenina, um, from 2007, I'm sorry, not the soloist atonement from 2007 and Anna Karenina in 2012. He unfortunately did direct the movie Pan, starring Hugh Jackman, Rooney Mara, and other people. Pan was a disappointment. I did not think it was as bad a film as other people said it was, but it was a critical and commercial failure. And it was so bad that Joe Wright said he would never direct a movie again. Fortunately, he came back to direct in 2021 in terms of uh, movies for The Woman in the Window, which was not a great film, but Cyrano makes up for what The Woman in the Window and Pan Lacked, And I think this could probably be considered a minor comeback for Joe Wright. And for a guy who thought he would never direct a movie again, I'm glad he directed Cyrano. And I hope that his next film is as good if not better. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Atom Project. This is a Netflix original that premiered on the platform on March 11th. And I was going to review it for you uh, last week, but the reason I didn't was because I hadn't completely finished the film. But now that I have... I'm going to review it for you right now. It's the latest film starring Ryan Reynolds. And anytime he's been in a movie recently, I have rolled my eyes because of how mediocre the film is and how overrated I think Ryan Reynolds is as an actor. As a matter of fact, I do think, especially when it comes to leading men, he is undoubtedly the most overrated actor in Hollywood. He made three films, last, or three of his films last year were released, specifically The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, Free Guy, and Red Notice, and I was not impressed with um, any of the films, really. I considered The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard and Free Guy the worst films of last year, among the worst films of last year, so... I did say before seeing this film that I will give it a chance because I don't dislike Ryan Reynolds. I think when he is good in a film, he's very good. In fact, there was a film he co-starred in with Helen Mirren back in 2016 that was called The Woman in Gold, where he wasn't playing a funny guy. He was actually playing a young lawyer who was helping this woman get a painting back that was stolen from her by the Nazis. And I think he did very well in that role. And I think when he sets his mind to it, he can be very good. But it's when he tries to be funny, and even in movies like Deadpool where he succeeded in being funny, where 8 out of 10 of the things he says are just eye-rollingly stupid. And it has to do with a lot of the fact that he can come off as very smug, and very self-satisfied, particularly when he tries to be funny. And I think The Adam Project is no exception to that rule, but I think he actually did a slightly better job in this film than he did in the three films in which he starred uh, last year, 2021. So in this film, he plays a time-traveling fighter pilot whose name is Adam Reed, hence the name The Adam Project, who teams up with his 12-year-old self for a mission to save the future. And the film originally takes place in the year 2050, that is 2050. And Adam Reed crash lands in 2022, and of all the places he could potentially crash land, he crash lands in his childhood home and meets his younger self, who's played by um, Walter Scobell. And Walter Scobell is a very young actor. He is, uh, the, actually, I can't tell how old he is, but he's definitely no older than 12. And this is actually his, uh, big screen debut as an actor. He has another film that's filming right now. That's called secret headquarters. And, um, he's probably one out of hundreds of boys who auditioned for this film, And got it, because that's the way Hollywood works. I was actually kind of impressed with how well he imitated Ryan Reynolds and his mannerisms. And even um, he was able to say some uh, zingers that sounded a lot like uh, Ryan Reynolds would say his zingers. And even though I don't find Ryan Reynolds to be particularly funny, and as I said, he's overwhelmingly smug... Walter Scobill has a promising uh, career as an actor if he can imitate somebody who is uh, as annoying and as smug as Ryan Reynolds tends to be. But anyway, Ryan Reynolds goes back to the year 2022 to try to stop the time-traveling mechanism that's developed by his estranged father, uh, Louis, who's played by Mark Ruffalo, from ever inventing it. And that's when... The time traveling part of this film gets a little bit confusing because if you go back in time to try to destroy time travel, doesn't that mean that you don't go back in time or doesn't that mean you destroy yourself? Well, the movie kind of skirts that space-time continuum uh, more so than other films about time travel especially back to the future because back to the future all three films developed uh the time traveling theories for the audience so that they actually wouldn't be confused and i think to back to the future's credit they had christopher lloyd's character doc brown explain to marty mcfly and therefore to the audience what the space-time continuum is in layman's terms so that people who are not adept at space-time continuum theories and quantum physics, like me, would be able to understand. And I don't think this movie did quite as well doing that. And it also was very confusing how the main motivations of the antagonist, like Another researcher named Maya Sorian, who's played by Katherine Keener, was able to a- achieve something by going back into the past to try to stop Ryan Reynolds' character from destroying space travel. And I think there are smarter ways where they could have made this work, but instead my head just hurt just thinking about how this space-time continuum could exist. But I liked the fact that they had Mark Ruffalo in this film as the quantum physics professor who's developing time travel. I thought he was good and added a lot of levity to this film once he got in it. And also the film, the, the scenes between him in the film between both Ryan Reynolds character and Walter Scoble's character who are the same character, just different ages were pretty sweet. And I actually liked it when Zoe Saldana, who plays, uh, Ryan Reynolds, former flame, Laura got into the picture as well. I did think that Jennifer Garner had a relatively thankless role as the single parent of Adam, who is trying to, well, trying to keep his, her son in line while also trying to find love for herself after, her husband dies mysteriously, I I think her character could have been developed better. And I, I think Jennifer Garner is typecast as the distraught mother or the distraught housewife. And in a lot of ways, she's like the generation X Donna Reed, but Donna Reed was in Films where her character was developed a lot better than Jennifer Garner's character is developed in this film. So the Adam project is not a perfect film, but I do credit Ryan Reynolds for toning down the smugness that he usually brings to a lot of his comic characters at least by one notch. And I think when he dials down his smug persona, he becomes more credible as an actor And also, when he's in scenes with better actors than him, like Mark Ruffalo or Zoe Saldana, or even this young actor who hasn't been in a feature film before this one, Walter Scobell, he is actually more grounded as an actor. So maybe that's what Ryan Reynolds needs. Although, granted, he was in The Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife with several other great actors like Salma Hayek, Samuel L. Jackson, and Morgan Freeman but he still came off as smug in that one. So maybe it's a question of direction rather than the actors who are there to get him to hit his marks and not be a wise-ass all the time. But The Adam Project was better than I expected it to be. It just got lost most of all, not by Ryan Reynolds' smugness, but by the confusion of the time travel and the space-time continuum that the movie doesn't bother to explain while not being boring. So for that reason, the Adam project gets my rating of a marginal checkout because it was better than the three films that Ryan Reynolds did last year. And I do think Ryan Reynolds is gradually earning his right to be a lead actor a little bit more with this film, but still, I thought that he still has a ways to go. And once he drops that smug persona, which I think he eventually will, particularly um, when he gets closer to the age of 50, he will not only be in better films, but also do better in future films. But I, th- the Adam Project is a good start, but it's not quite where he needs to be. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to to give you the segment, What's Coming Up Next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters beginning on March 25th. And there is a huge one that I will see and I will review for you on a future show. Not next week's show, but um, probably a show in three weeks. And that movie is The Lost City. This is the latest movie starring Brad Pitt, Sandra Bullock, and Channing Tatum, and Daniel Radcliffe. So great cast right there. But it is about a reclusive romance novelist on a book tour Uh, and her cover model who gets swept up in a kidnapping attempt that lands them both in a cutthroat jungle adventure. This movie is directed by Aaron and Adam Knee, who I assume are brothers. But if they're not brothers, they might be cousins. And if they're not cousins and they're not related at all, that is quite a coincidence that they would both have the last name Knee. But I'm pretty sure they're brothers. And The Lost City is a film that I will see, and i will review for you i will review it for you on next week's show another movie that is subject to be released in theaters on march 25th is a movie that's called Infinite Storm this is a movie about a climber presumably a mountain climber who when getting caught in a blizzard she encounters a stranded stranger and must get them both down the mountain before nightfall this movie stars Naomi Watts a little bit of a break of uh her typecasting, playing a um, mountain climber, uh, particularly one in the Arctic. I, God, I don't know why people do that, but the pain is worth it to them, and I respect that. It's just something I would never do, or uh, I would be more less likely to do it. But anyway, the movie stars Naomi Watts, Dennis O'Hare, Billy Howell, and Elliot Sumner. If this movie is in theaters and I have time to see it, I will review it for you on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters is a movie that's called Everything Everywhere All at Once. This is a movie about an ancient Chinese immigrant who is swept up in an insane adventure where she alone can save the world by exploring other universes connected with the lives she could have led. This movie stars Stephanie Hsu, Jenny Slate, Jamie Lee Curtis, and James Hong. And I got to be honest, I don't know who Stephanie Shu is, but she is an Asian actress. Particular, she's actually from uh, L.A., so she is uh, Asian-American, I presume Chinese-American. And she has been on uh, shows like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, where she's had a recurring role as Mai. She's on a Hulu show that's called The Path. She also made an appearance on The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, but in terms of movies, she hasn't been in too many films, at least none that I uh, remember or have seen, but she's been in, let's see, uh, she's been in a podcast series called Summer in Argyle, which might be her podcast series. She's been in a movie called Asking For It, which I haven't seen. Uh, Not surprisingly, she was in a supporting role in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I say not surprisingly because there were a lot of Chinese and Chinese Americans in that movie, but I don't remember her character specifically, but this is a film that looks very interesting. And if it's in a theater near me, I will see it and I will review it for you on next week's show. There's another film that is subject to being released in theaters on March 25th, and it's a movie that's called Mothering Sunday. This is a movie about a maid living in post-World War I England who secretly plans to meet with the man she loves before he leaves to marry another woman. Sounds very spicy. The movie stars Odessa Young, Josh O'Connor, Colin Firth, and Olivia Coleman. And Odessa Young is a young actress. She's only... Uh, 24 years old, she has been in movies like Assassination Nation from 2018, which was a Quentin Tarantino wannabe film that both was bad and didn't make a lot of sense, but that wasn't the fault of the actors in the film, it was just a mess, but she was also in a 2018 movie called The Professor, a 2015 movie called The Daughter, and a 2020 film called Shirley, none of which I have actually seen, but her name sounds very familiar. And if Mothering Sunday is coming out in the theater near me, I might see it, and I might review it for you on next week's show. Now on to movies that are coming out on Netflix. And honestly, there aren't many new movies that are coming out the week of March 21st through 25th, but there is a film that is coming out on Monday, March 21st, that is a Netflix original that is called In Good Hands, and I honestly don't recognize the flag that is being shown to me, but I can probably review it for you or tell you about it right now. It is directed by somebody named Ketche, and Ketche is a foreign director whose nationality is not being revealed to me right now. I am not going to stop until I recognize the nationality of these the people in this film. But the lead actress in the film, Asli Enver, is a British actress, and she co-stars alongside Khan Ergon Sioglu. I hope I pronounced that last name right. And he is a native of Turkey, so presumably... This movie, which is titled In Good Hands, is a Turkish film, but it's about a single mother who, diagnosed with terminal illness, encounters a suave bachelor as she grapples with the future of her headstrong six-year-old. Sounds like a very interesting premise, and it is a movie that I might review, and if I do, I will let you know what I think of it on next week's show. There's another film that is coming out On Thursday, March 24th, on Netflix, it's a Netflix original that comes from Japan, and it is called Love Like the Falling Petals, which is a very poetic name. And what I can tell you about this film is that, as I said, it's Japanese, and it is a film about an aspiring photographer who falls in love with a skillful hairstylist, and the future stretches before them until a twist of fate threatens their romance. It is directed by Yoshihiro Fugayawa and looks particularly interesting, not to mention romantic. And it also kind of bears a resemblance in plot to the butterfly effect. But I'm not going to say it's like it or based on it, but from what I can see from the clips that are being shown to me, it looks like a very beautiful film. Will I see it? Maybe, but... I actually have a lot of films, there were a lot of films that came out this past week in theaters and on streaming that I didn't get to see. I might play catch up on those, particularly over the next two weeks when I do my Oscar shows. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.